Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Good to be back with you. Uh, I was away at a board meeting for a nonprofit that I've uh, been part of for many years, and so it's good to be back with you. Before I begin my message, I wanted to say a word of appreciation to Sherry Richard, who spoke last week. Uh, You know, a part of our vision here at City Church is to raise up the next generation of leaders and communicators, and I'm excited about our future because of leaders like Sherry. And so, Sherry, wherever you are, I just want to say thank you. You did a great job. All right, in this series, we're exploring why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And we've taken a journey together unpacking the evidence for the Christian faith. Because God never asks anyone to take anything by faith alone. He never asks anyone to believe just because without giving us a reason to believe. You see, the historic Christian faith is based on someone and because of something. It's based on the person of Jesus and because of the miracles he did. We believe what we believe because of eyewitnesses who recorded credible evidence of those miracles. And I'm calling those eyewitnesses in this series bystanders. And they've given us a reason to believe because seeing is believing. And so if you're here today or watching over in the video cafe or watching online and you don't believe in Jesus yet, I just want you to know you're welcome here. We exist for you. We're the kind of church that hopes that people that don't believe what we believe will come and check out what we believe. But I do want to say I hope that you will consider changing what you believe. And I think we do this often in life, in different seasons of life, when new information surfaces, when credible evidence is presented. I think we all change what we believe at times. Is that true for you? Like, has there ever been anything that that you believe that you change what you believe based on new information and credible evidence? Was there ever anything that you did that you changed what you did because you changed what you believe? So let me give you just a few examples from my life. So back when I was a kid, I used to love playing outside. I would stay outside all day if my mom would let me, you know, playing sports, riding my bike, swimming, whatever. And back in my day, uh, when I was a kid, they didn't have sunblock and sunscreen and all that crap. So, you know, but you still, yeah, I'm that old. Um, but, you know, you still got sunburn. And so, you know, my mom would try to do something to help me not get burnt. And so she would take baby oil and smear it on my skin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're all laughing because you all know that's craziness. Because, you know, what I think the thinking was, well, let's put a layer of something over the skin and then it'll protect you and then it'll make your skin soft and, you know, you won't won't get dry and peel. But of course, we now know that that's actually bad for you because it magnifies the impact of the sun on you. It's like my mom was greasing me up to fry me in the sun. And mom, I I do want to say my mom and dad watch online. Mom, sorry to throw you under the bus, but you are the one that greased me up to fry in the sun, just saying. Now, here's my point. When my mom did get new information, she changed what she believed about baby oil. So let me give you another example. My half season playing football. And I say half season <laughs> because, uh, you know, when I was in middle school, I was like five foot three, skinny as a rail. Like I didn't even weigh 100 pounds with wet clothes on. And I didn't like getting hit and all that stuff. And so it was a half season. 
So let me tell you about my half season playing football. Uh, it was up at Pat Neff Middle School down the street. And uh, yeah, summer. And, and of course, it started in summer in August in South Texas. 100 degree plus weather. And my coaches would do things to toughen you up. And so one of the things our coaches did back then is they would withhold water from you. Yeah, because they thought that would toughen you up. And instead, they would give us salt pills. Yeah, no water, salt pills. It's crazy, right? I mean, it's no wonder I'm so messed up. <laughs> but then coaches got new information. They got credible evidence. And they changed what they believed. One more example. So when my son was born in 1990, we took a class on how to take care of babies and infants. And so in that class, they taught us the way you got an infant ready to sleep is you would take this thin sheet or blanket and you would wrap your baby tightly like a, like a burrito or something. And then you were supposed to take your baby you know, all wrapped up and put them face down in the crib I, the thinking, I think, was that you would keep them from choking on their spit-up and, and stuff like that. Well, by the time my daughter was born, four years later, 1994, pediatricians had changed all, all, all of what they had believed about how to put a baby to bed. Instead, they said, don't wrap your infant all tight. They need to have their hands free and put them uh, head face up in the crib to protect them from getting smothered like in blankets and, and they said get rid of all of the bumpers around the, the bed and all. Here's my point. We got new information. We got credible evidence. So we changed what we believe. Now let's just be honest. Uh, how many of you know that, that you'll never change what you believe if you're like what I would call like a closed-minded person? Closed-minded people, this is what I think happens, and, and it can happen to any of us. We get into a certain box, so picture a box, like a belief box, and, and we feel a sense of comfort in this belief box, and what we decide to do is to stay in this belief box because it makes us feel comfortable, and so we don't want to consider any information that might lead us to step out of the belief box. You see where I'm going? That posture is what I call willful blindness. Willful blindness occurs when credible evidence, new information surfaces that ought to make you want to change what you believe, but you choose not to look at it because you don't want to leave your belief box because you feel comfortable in it. And I just think that all of us, myself included, we all need to admit that there have been times in our lives where we found out that what we believed was not right, it was wrong, and we needed to change our beliefs. Like, at some point, my mom had to be willing to change what she believed about baby oil. At some point, my coaches had to be willing to change what they believed about hydration and doling out salt pills. And at some point, Barbara and I had to be willing to change what we believed was best for our babies. And I believe there are seasons in life where it is right and it is wise to consider changing what you believe. I mean, when new information sheds new light, when credible evidence surfaces, you ought to be willing to consider changing what you believe. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, in this series, I'm hoping to present credible evidence that I hope will lead you to change what you believe. And if you already believe in Jesus, my hope for this series is that it will give you a sense of confidence about why you believe 
what you believe so you can share your faith with others who don't believe. Now, today we're going to look at a fifth miraculous sign that Jesus performed and how some people chose to respond to this miracle with willful blindness. So let me set up the series in case uh, you're new to this series. During this series, we're exploring the eyewitness account of a certain um, bystander named John. And John was one of Jesus' 12 core disciples. He spent three years traveling with Jesus, ministering with him. And during those years, John saw dozens and dozens and dozens of miracles. And those miracles led John to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, for John, seeing was believing. And John, uh, as he got older, decided to write down some of these miracles that he witnessed so that people, you know, generations after could see the credible evidence that he left them, and hopefully they would believe too. And so near the end of this account, uh, he put it together in a document that we call the Gospel of John or the Good News of John. He tells us why he wrote what he wrote. This is John 20, verse 30, where John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So these miraculous signs that we're looking at, John has a, a purpose for. He, he hopes that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he doesn't want us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God so we'll join a new religion. He wants us to believe Jesus is the Son of God so we'll have life. The kind of life only the Son of God can give you. Don't you want that kind of life? Well, let's look at this fifth miraculous sign. So let me set up what's going on. Uh, Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem uh, the key city in the, the land of Israel. And whenever Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, he was there for the Passover festival. So there's a big festival. People from all over uh, the Roman Empire were there for this festival. Whenever he came to Jerusalem, he often had conflicts with the religious leaders there because they had their belief boxes. And Jesus didn't fit into their belief box very well. And so they butted heads a lot. And in fact, they had just had a pretty serious conflict it got so intense, it was in the temple grounds area, it got so intense that some of the religious leaders had picked up stones to stone Jesus, but he had slipped out. And so if, if, if you could imagine Jesus, it was pretty emotional. You know, he's breathing pretty heavy and he's walking out of the temple ground area and it's like, you know what? I'm gonna do something to shake up some belief boxes. And he walks, walks out of the temple ground area and he sees the man the next man whose life he would change forever. This sets up the miraculous sign. This is John chapter nine, verse one. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now the disciples' question sounds a little bit odd to us, doesn't it? You see, it expressed their belief box. And the Jewish people in the first century, their rabbis taught them that there was a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. 
Uh, it goes something like this. If, if, there, if someone is suffering, someone probably sinned to cause it. There was a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. And I think the theology goes something like this. A good God would not allow good people to suffer. But a good God would allow sinful people to suffer. And so, if somebody suffered, somebody sinned. You see what I mean? Cause and effect relationship. Now, let's acknowledge that sometimes our sin can cause suffering in our lives. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. Like sometimes even physical suffering. So take, take for example, you, know, you get drunk, you drive your car, you wreck it, and you get injured. Your sin caused your own suffering. See what I'm saying? And sometimes we can cause our own relational suffering. So a married person has an affair and then ruins their marriage and wrecks their family. That person's own sin led to their own suffering. And then I think we do know that sometimes somebody else's sin can cause our suffering. Somebody may choose to hurt you or abuse you. You didn't do anything wrong, what that person did. And so their sin led to your suffering. You know what I'm saying? But here, Jesus says something interesting. He says we should not assume there is a connection between sin and suffering. So here's what he's doing. He's seeking to break his disciples out of their belief box. You see? He's calling them out of what they believe to believe something new. You see, sometimes suffering just happens. No sin caused it. It just happens. And then Jesus adds something new to people's theology about suffering. Because here Jesus talks about there being a purpose for suffering. And that was new. You ever thought of that? Not all the time, but that sometimes there can actually be a purpose for suffering. I mean, think about Jesus' suffering. He was persecuted. He faced conflict. People attacked him. And some of his suffering, I don't think it served any purpose. It, it was a pain in the neck. But we do know that some of his suffering did serve a purpose. When he died on the cross... There was a reason. We believe he paid our sin debt. And that's why we call him Savior. And what Jesus says about this blind man is in his case, his suffering was going to serve a purpose. And this is what Jesus said. This man's suffering happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, there are some times where God displays his power and his presence on the stage of human suffering. And maybe you've experienced that before, you've seen that in someone else, where you know somebody who faced a season of suffering and they were so strong and so peaceful that their faith inspired you. And you know, in, in my years, 30 plus years as a pastor, the extraordinary uh, people that I've met, they're not the ones who made a lot of money, bought a lot of property, never had any problems, and lived to be 100. I mean, happy for those folks. The people who inspire me are the ones who face a season of suffering and pain. And instead of becoming angry and bitter, they become stronger. In fact, I've talked to people who've gone through seasons of suffering, and they tell me, that they got closer to God through their suffering and they experienced God in a unique way in their suffering. And it, it sort of became a foundation of their faith. Those are the people that inspire me. And you know, those are the people that remind me of Jesus. Well, let's get back to the, uh, the blind man, all right? So this is John chapter nine, verse six. So after saying this, Jesus is doing this, 
he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent, Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It was a miracle. It was kind of a gross miracle, you know, if I can say. I mean, it's probably a, a, good, it's probably a good thing the guy was blind and didn't see what Jesus was doing, you know. Little, put a little spit on your face. Okay, couple of observations that I wanna make about this miracle. First, it's where Jesus told him to go and wash. So they were near the temple grounds area, and I, I have a map of ancient uh, Jerusalem. So the temple ground area is way up there in the northeast part of the city. And the pool of Siloam, we have it boxed there, is way, way in the southeast part of the city. And what I think is interesting is he would have passed by other bodies of water, other pools in Jerusalem. Why did Jesus want him to go to the pool of Siloam? And I believe it's important because I think Jesus was sending a message. He wanted him to go all the way to that pool because that pool played a significant role in the Jewish religion. In the Jewish religion, if someone converted to Judaism, they baptized them in the pool of Siloam. So it was a place where a significant religious ritual took place. And I think Jesus wanted this man to wash his eyes uh, in that pool because he was sending a message that he was starting something new that would replace the old that currently existed. Through that water, and through the miracle that happened when Jesus sent him to that water, Jesus was letting people know, I'm starting a new movement. And this new movement is better than the old one. There was nothing wrong with it. We believe God established the old religious system through, through the prophet Moses. But Jesus now was starting something new. And what he was starting was better. This something new that he was starting was about him and who he was. And it would require people to change their beliefs, to get out of their belief boxes. Now, the second uh, observation I wanna make about this miracle is how the blind man experienced the miracle. Did you notice that Jesus told him to go away, to go and wash? So in essence, Jesus told the blind man to go away from his presence before he experienced any miracle. And I think, uh, the response of this blind man, John is wanting us to respond to Jesus the way this blind man did. So think about what he did. He walked by faith, not by sight, literally. And because he was blind, we don't know how he got to the pool. I, I don't know if he had a friend that took him there, but he had to take a journey to get to the pool. And all along the way, think, what, what would be motivating him? At this point, he hadn't experienced a miracle. It's what he had heard from others. He hadn't experienced a miracle, but others had been talking about this man, Jesus, and the miracles that he had done. And that motivated this man to take a step of faith. And when he took a step of faith, he experienced God's power, and he was healed. It was a miracle. But there was a problem. And it relates to this mud thing. You see, the day that this miracle occurred was on the Sabbath. And uh, 
And I, I talked to y'all a few weeks ago about the Sabbath. There were a lot of religious rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, th th these rules were not in the laws of Moses that guided the Jewish religion. The only thing the, the laws of Moses said about the Sabbath was you're supposed to keep it holy and not work on it. And it was really a gift from God. Hey, don't work on the seventh day. Relax, rest, you know, chill. But these religious leaders instead made it a burden because they wrote up a bunch of rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. In fact, they had 39 categories of actions that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. I'm going somewhere with this. Not 39 actions, 39 categories of actions. And guess what one of the categories of actions that you couldn't do on the Sabbath was? You couldn't need. Now, I'm not talking about N-E-E-D. I'm talking about K-N-E-A-D. You know, like, like when you knead dough to make bread or tortillas or something? So these religious leaders who added all of these rules years and years later after uh, the laws of Moses were written, they said you couldn't need on the Sabbath. If you needed, then you were sinning. And so th the reason this is an issue is the mud stuff because Jesus needed to make the mud. And you know, what I, you know what I think? This is just my interpretation. I think Jesus needed the mud and he made the mud on purpose. Now, a little bit of passive aggressive. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> think about it. Did Jesus have to make mud to heal the man? No. I mean, in other cases, he just spoke to a person and said, you know, open your eyes. Or, or in other cases, he touched the person. So why did he make mud and tell this guy to go to this pool, this religious pool, to wash? He wanted to bust some people out of their belief boxes. So here's what happens. Okay, so now the, now the man can see, and he did what a, what a good, faithful Jewish person would do. He went to the temple to offer a sacrifice of praise and to report about the miracle. Well, the religious leaders there at the temple started asking him questions about what happened and how he got healed. And by the way, they also had rules that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath either. Go figure. I, I don't know. Okay. And so they started asking this healed man questions about how he got healed. And when they heard about the mud, the need in the mud, they determined Jesus had broken the Sabbath. He was a sinner. And so they brought this blind man back in. They're really, at this point, they're interrogating him. And they're trying to get the blind man to admit that Jesus was a sinner. Okay, so you got the scene. I didn't want to read all the verses. I'm just talking about what happened. So this is where we pick up in the story again. This is chapter 9, verse 24. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. So that's the religious leaders. And they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have already told you, but what? And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> to, this is so great. Who can make this stuff up? To this, oh, this, verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. That's their belief box. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. They threw him out of their religious community. Why? 
Those religious leaders, they were so confident about their belief box. They were so confident that Jesus had to be a sinner because he didn't fit in their box. Think about what happened. They saw a verifiable miracle, probably a person they had seen throughout their lifetime. But instead of focusing on the miracle, instead of rejoicing with this man who now could see, instead of celebrating with him and praising God, what did they do? They interrogated him, then they cursed him, and then they kicked him out of church. Why would they do it? Why would they refuse to admit what they had seen? Why would they ignore the credible evidence? Willful blindness. They refused to see. They could see, but they refused to see. The blind man could see it. They couldn't see it. Their willful blindness kept them in their belief box. And it's because Jesus was bigger than what they thought he was going to be. He was different than what they expected him to be. And so they refused to change what they believed. They were blinded by their assumptions. But then there's the response of the blind man, the healed man. And this, I love what he says. He basically says to their questions, he says, you know, you, you ask me, is he a sinner? I don't know. I don't know everything about everything. I, I don't understand everything. But I don't have to understand everything to believe in something. And maybe that's where you are in your journey. Some of us are wired where we have to understand everything about everything to believe in anything. You know what I mean? Everybody's not wired that way, but some of us are. And maybe you, you, you've been tied up trying to understand everything about everything before you'll believe. I, I want to suggest to you that in other areas of our lives, we don't do that. We don't have to understand everything about everything to believe something. Like, do you, do you believe in energy? Do you understand everything about how energy works? I don't. Do you believe in consciousness? Do you understand everything about how consciousness works? I don't. Do you believe in love? Come on now, don't be a hater. <laughs> Do you believe in love? Does anybody understand everything about how love works? <laughs> I don't think so. And here's all I'm trying to say. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. And this blind man said, you know what, I don't understand everything, but that man told me to do something and now I can see. I want what he has. And here's what's interesting in the story at this point, when he gets kicked out of his church, the synagogue, he still hasn't seen Jesus. And so Jesus goes and finds him. This is John chapter nine, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. When the blind man looked at Jesus and heard Jesus' testimony about who he is, he looked and believed, and he bowed down and worshiped. And in this story, we see two responses, two very different responses. A blind man is the one who could see. 
both figuratively and literally, both spiritually and physically. But the people who could see refused to see because they chose to cling to willful blindness. Jesus was bigger than what they thought he would be. And let me explain what I mean by, this is so important. Some of you know uh, the beliefs of the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually believed the right theology. They believed the same theology as Jesus. Not like the Sadducees that we talked about a few weeks ago. Pharisees believed in a living God. Pharisees believed in the human soul, the eternal part of the human soul. Pharisees believed in life after death. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Pharisees believed in miracles. Pharisees believed in angels. Pharisees believed in the prophecies about the Messiah, the Christ. They believed all the same stuff Jesus believed, but they missed him because of willful blindness. It's not about your theology. It's about your willingness to look at credible evidence and believe. And they missed him because they stayed in the box of their pre-existing, presumptuous belief system and remain willfully blind. And so I want to say something to you. Those of you who know you're in a box and you've been wanting to stay there and you've been fighting to stay there and you've been justifying why you ought to stay there, I just I want you to know I love you, but I am going to challenge you to consider looking out of the box. When, when was the last time you looked out of the box? Now, I just I want to acknowledge... How, you know, how do people get into that box, that, that box of willful blindness? Sometimes I think it's because they get angry with God because of their suffering or because of the suffering of someone else they know. Sometimes I think people get into a, a, a belief box that blinds them. Uh, it may be because you've been hurt by Christians. And I do want to acknowledge that Christians have sometimes done and said some terrible things. People who call themselves followers of Christ. And so, because you've been hurt by Christians, you don't want to consider our Christ. And there's a, some of you that may be in, in your belief box and you don't want to change because you're just resistant to change in general. And your fear keeps you paralyzed in your box. And then there's others of you who grew up in a religious box with a religious box that you didn't like, but you still feel stuck in it and you don't know how to get out. I think that there are times when you have to look at what you believe, look at the evidence for believing something else and make a change. And that's what I'm inviting you to do. If you don't, if you don't call yourself a Christian, if, uh, if you used to be a Christian but now you don't call yourself a Christian, or if somebody just talked you into coming or watching online or listening to this message, I'm inviting you to do what the blind man did. He looked. Have you looked lately? Are you afraid to look? Are you afraid what you might see? Are you afraid what might happen? I believe Jesus can give you life. And I'm asking you to consider changing what you believe because of the evidence. And can we just all acknowledge that God is bigger than any of our theological boxes? And Jesus certainly surprised everybody Yeah. He was bigger than, any, than anybody thought he would be. They, they were surprised, but isn't it awesome that he was bigger, not littler? And so I do want to say to you, Jesus is bigger than your belief box. He's bigger than your circumstances. He's bigger than your suffering. He's bigger than your doubts. He's bigger than your unbelief. And I just, I want to give you hope. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. I'm asking you to believe in Jesus. Let's pray for a moment.
And Lord, specifically, I pray for those who've heard me talking about a belief box and they know they're in it and they want to get out of it. So my, my prayer for you is that you would just open up your heart and your mind to Jesus and say, Jesus, I just admit I, I don't understand everything, but I'm starting to understand some things about you. And I want to put my faith in you. I want to believe in you. And Lord, my prayer is that you would look at the hearts of those who are opening up their minds and hearts to you. And when they believe in you, my prayer is that you would just uh, encourage them and give them a, a renewed sense of hope and peace in their lives.